like what we're doing in, in Oak Cliff, I mean, that can be a, a really long-term development plan. And we're seeing that in other places where you can buy a huge swath of an area and you can do renovation of old buildings. You can buy land next to it. And I mean, this can be a very long-term development. So yeah, if you were to buy something like that in 2028, you could continue building and depreciating for a very long time after 2028. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Are you a commercial real estate investment broker or anyone out there with an off-market Class B industrial deal between 15 and $100 million? Fort Capital offers industry-leading incentives, including a bonus, the ability to co-invest, and exclusive partner trips for those that close deals with us. Join Fort Capital's deal incentive program today to be eligible for these incentives and more by going to www.fortcapitallp.com backslash connect. Barrett, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm excited. Yeah. Uh, the first time we met was at Reconvene, right? It was. And hopefully not the last time. That's right. Um, all right. Let's just kind of set the stage here. How did your career get started in real estate? And then we'll advance to how you became an expert in opportunity zones. Sure. And it's a, it's a long and winding path, but it started as a, as a mortgage broker right out of SMU. So did my undergrad at SMU and didn't know what I wanted to do and randomly applied to multiple jobs, but ended up working for a mortgage brokerage in, in Dallas, uh, called BMC capital. Oh yeah. So a commercial mortgage brokerage shop that really did everything but focused on small balance loans. So one to $15 million deals. Okay. And you did that for what? I was there for about seven years. So okay. started as an analyst, worked for a couple different, uh, couple different producers, uh, one in Dallas, one in Delaware, and one in, uh, one in California. So worked on hotel loans and triple net and apartments and, and really got to experience all of it. So did that for a couple of years. Then uh, got promoted and I was in charge of training and, and supervising all the analysts. So I had about 15 guys working for me. So I'm 23 and I'm supervising a whole bunch of 21 year olds. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was interesting. And that's in 06 and 07 when, I mean, everything's good. Yeah. You know, we're doing a whole bunch of deals and everybody, uh, who's 25 to 35 is making a zillion dollars. And I'm, I'm going home every day saying, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to make so much money, you know, <laughs> give, give, give me two more years. This is, it's going to be, it's going to be great. Um, and I remember in, you know, middle of 07, I, I was having lunch with this, this mentor, um, who's yeah, he's now he's in his, in his mid seventies, but you know, then I sat down with him and he did his, did his hand kind of in an up and down roller coaster motion. And he said, do you know where we are? And I said, no, Buzz, I don't know where we are. He goes, we're right here. 
here <laughs> and at the top at the top and and i said what are you talking about i said all these guys are making so much money it's great everything's good he goes okay okay just just remember and you know yeah he certainly was right but um did he back that up with why he thought we were there <laughs> you know it wasn't anything specific yeah uh he just said you know I, I know this guy who got into the business two weeks ago and he's somebody's son-in-law and he just made half a million bucks on a lease deal yeah. and he doesn't have any business doing it. Yeah. And you know, that was his barometer. Um, but yeah, he was certainly right. And you know, it was interesting at that time to, and it, it took a year, right. For everything to fall apart. Um, and then I sat down with him again buzz what do i do now <laughs> you know like all these guys who are making a million bucks they all all left the business and he said well what do you want to do I said, well i like real estate a lot so we'll stick with it you know you're not going to make any money for the next year or two but stick with it and and so that's kind of what i did you know i i stayed in the in the same role did not make any money um because right at that time i'd quit being the the supervisor of all the analysts and I'd gone on full commission yeah. <laughs> a couple months before. Um, and so, you know, went through that process of, of not making any money, trying to build relationships and, and over the next couple of years, you know, made very little money, but built a lot of quality relationships. And in late 2009, early 2010, finally, those relationships started paying off, started making some money as a, as a commercial mortgage broker. And, also started in business school at the same time. So did the part-time MBA program at SMU, started making some loans, got married, and you know it, it all kind of started to click. Um, so yeah. Okay, so we're gonna spend just a little bit of time here. So 06, 07, was, and, and you're providing uh, debt, I'm assuming not equity, yep, just, debt just debt to million to $15 million loans. You talked to Buzz, he said we're maybe right here. I wanna talk about, um, was there any cracks that you saw actually, assume you hadn't talked to Buzz, was there anything that you saw starting to happen in 06 and 07 from the business side that you could reflect on and go, the writing was on the wall that, that 08 was coming? Were, were deals starting to fall apart or it was just getting easier and easier to get financing? Was there anything from BMC's side that you went, in hindsight, I could see the writing on the wall? I don't know that I was smart enough okay. to, you know, I'm, I'm 23 or 24 or yeah. whatever. Um, so I don't know that I was smart enough to see anything at that point other than like my reality. So we're just doing deals and that's all I'd ever known, right? Okay. Just pushing it through. So the folks who were getting loans at that point, that's how we'd always done loans. Okay. Then then let's fast forward to nine and 10 because a lot of listeners, they've experienced a really long bull market. It's been getting easier and easier each year. Yeah. When things started to kind of maybe had bottomed out and you said, I started to actually, you know, see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. Can you reflect on anything? What was the world like in 09, 10 when we were kind of getting back on track? Yeah. So it, that was very interesting yeah. because you'd had years where there were very few lenders. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the lenders that we had historically worked with didn't exist anymore. Mm. So you had to like relearn who's putting money out, what terms are they putting money out at, and who do they want to lend to. So it was, you know, there's insurance companies now, there's different types of banks, the CMBS lenders are gone, right? <laughs> like, so it's a, it's a different world. And the sponsors that they want to work with are, 
you know, very high quality. They want to lend money at low leverage. Like, so, so it's this new world and, and you had to learn to work within it. Yeah. Um, and so my first client was this guy who was, was very wealthy, uh, in oh late oh eight, he got so fed up with his lender and servicer that he wrote a check to pay off all of his loans. Um, and then I cold called him in late oh nine and he just said, be in my office tomorrow morning. I said, Great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I knew what he owned and it, it was fantastic. And so I, I went and met him out in uh in Garland and he said, Yeah, you know, I own it was like three thousand apartment units. I own all these units and I, I paid off all the debt. I wrote a check and paid cash and paid everything off. And now I want to put debt back on them. Okay, cool. <laughs> Why do so, you pay it off? Um, he didn't like his lender and his servicer and he had the cash. Yeah. And so he just did it. Okay. And so now I got to go back through and it was a combination of insurance companies and later uh, Fannie Mae and just put like 65% leverage on everything. And then he used that cash to buy more stuff. And it was, he was a fun client. Um, but that was really like the first money I had made in, in two years. But what you really learned dealing with somebody like him was even with a guy like that, who's extremely wealthy, owns everything free and clear, has a ton of experience. Even then the banks are being extremely conservative. Yeah. And it was like, whoa, this is going to be tough. The irony is that at the bottom, when they should just be handing money out to to uh, to lend, absolutely, they it's the opposite. And at the top, when they should be conservative, it's flying out the door. Yes. Um, let's just kind of finish on this topic. Um, what if you're sitting here right now and uh, you think you got a great company and you know that you're always going to be able to borrow money? And another 08 hits. Let's just kind of talk through who were the folks that were able to borrow. You kind of mentioned high quality sponsors. Does this mean they had huge balance sheets? They had just been in business a long time with great track records. Like who are the people at the bottom that can borrow first? Well, I think it was it, folks who didn't have problems, right? So the lenders are looking at their global cash flow saying, what about all their other assets? Yeah. Um, but then also the the bankers, the lenders in general were looking at the asset itself and the business plan and saying, is this a stabilized asset right now? Or do you need to, you know, make renovations? Do you need to increase cash flow? Cause we don't really want to deal with that right now. Yeah. We need in place cash flow day one. And so, so much of the stuff that, that I'm doing now and, and have done historically and that other folks have done those deals didn't work. Yeah. Because the bank didn't want to listen to your business plan. They wanted cash flow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was different. Cool. Yeah. All right. So we're now um we're we'll bring it kind of to present time. Let's talk about Savoy Equity Partners. You've kind of been putting together deals for the last few years. So let's just talk about what you've been up to the last couple of years. Um, I think when we first talked, you're like, we didn't even have a company name when we started. We were just outputting deals together. Yeah. Well, and so in 2012, I bought my first deal, okay. which was eight units. Um, and I was still a mortgage broker, but I said, okay, well, I know enough now to, to buy a property. Yeah. And I'd finished my MBA and said, what, what am I going to do next? So I, I bought an eight unit building. Uh, my wife was the property manager and construction manager. My mother-in-law was, was most of the equity and guaranteed the debt. <laughs> um, and, and we went out and bought a deal. And it, it worked really well. 
like I still have my day job, but we made it happen. Um, my, my wife and mother-in-law were a huge part of it. And then we made the money and, and did the next deal, which was 13 units and did the next deal, which was 65 units. And the next one was a hundred. And so just kind of kept going. And each deal was more complicated, um, had different wrinkles to it, needed more money. Um, so slowly brought in different partners, um, equity partners or management or construction or, or whatever it, that deal may have called for. And at the same time, I'm doing less mortgage brokerage. Um, and, and so it just kind of evolved to where, hey, I'm not really doing this anymore. Now I'm doing that. And, and that continued to where uh, about oh, 2016, 17, 18, um, my best mortgage brokerage client over the years, uh, a guy named Seth Bame, who runs Indio Property Management, um, he and I were competing to buy properties. And I'm his client on the property management side. He's my client on the mortgage brokerage side. We both were buying stuff, but we're butting heads mm -hmm. and we're buddies. And he said, hey, <laughs> let's not do this anymore. Let's just partner up to buy stuff. Yep. And so, so that worked really well. And, and for about five years, we, we were partnering up to buy stuff. And about two years ago, we started working on a real big project and it, it's continued to, well, it didn't start real big, but it's grown into a real big project. And recently I was kind of out pitching, raising money for that deal and laid it all out for somebody. And it's turned into like a nine figure project. And they said, well, that's great. What's the name of your company? <laughs> and I said, uh, oh, yeah, we don't, we don't have a name. Like, you know, it's XYZ LLC. Just, just write the check. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the guy said, um, oh, okay. <laughs> and, and I went back to the office. I said, Hey man, well, we need to, we need to have a name here because we're raising money. We're hiring people like this needs to, we need to grow up. Yeah. And, and so, yes. So now we have a, a company name, which is Savoy Equity Partners. Um, and we're growing that significantly to where, you know, putting in some, some institutional processes and, uh, yeah, doing all the things we should have been doing for a little while. So after all those years, were you, you know, buying a 13 unit, fixing it up, selling it, going to 65, were you always buying and selling or were you keeping these along the way? Both. Okay. Um, they were all heavy value add deals. Okay. Is that why so, you said they were kind of complicated or got hairier and hairier? Yeah. Well, I think it was that and the market. So for the first five years we're doing it, the market was really good, uh, you know, up and to the right, right? We yeah. had big tailwinds, but also there wasn't as much competition in Dallas. Right. So we could buy almost anything, do a big gut renovation, and it was good. We would make a bunch of money. And so it didn't have to be that complicated. Um, now that some time has passed, there's a lot more folks chasing deals. And so that's when we started adding in these layers of complication. So historic tax credits, uh, opportunity zone, fractured condo deconversion, um, you know, this weird stuff that, that we had to do to hit the hurdle rates that we wanted. Cause we've always underwritten pretty darn conservatively. But if I look around now, I don't think I can find a deal, no matter how hard I look that hits our rate of return that we want without some other layer of complication. It just doesn't exist in the world. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's when we, when we started uh, adding in the weird stuff. All right, we're gonna spend some time. This will be fun. We're gonna go through kind of your big deal that you've been working on sure. for the last few years. And 
let's just kind of walk through it, how it all came to be, what's going to happen, why there's the return hurdle, why it meets your threshold, how it turned into a nine-figure deal. Let's just kind of go through it. So for anybody listening, we'll call it the the Lake Cliff deal. Yeah, and it's going to have a, a nice, pretty name soon. <laughs> but right now, it's the Lake Cliff Lake deal. Cliff. And this will be a, a true kind of master class in how complex deals come together um, you'll probably make it sound a lot easier than it really is, but let's kind of make, let's kind of, you know, use the next 20, 30 minutes to talk about it. Sure. So what was the vision? How did it get started? Yeah. Uh, accidentally. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and that's true. Um, so this deal started because we've invested in an area before and there was a part of that area that was really hairy and problematic and we didn't want to go into that area. So we call it like there's a hole in the donut. So the donut's really good, but the hole was was really bad and problematic. So crime ridden, there was vacancy, there was blight. It was just really tough. And what we knew is that if we bought one property in this area, that it would not matter that we would lose money. But if we were able to buy a critical mass that we could make a difference. So now we had to figure out, well, how do, how do you buy a critical mass all at once? Um, and so we knew that there was a portfolio in there of eight properties. And if we could get it, it would be enough, we thought, <laughs> we hoped. And so it was owned by this guy out of Tokyo. Uh, he'd never seen the properties. He lived in Tokyo. And it was managed by a group out of Corpus Christi who didn't really visit the properties either. So that's good, right? Yeah. It's got the makings of of what you want. It was 40% occupied um with leases. There were more people living there, but they weren't <laughs> they weren't supposed to be. And so we said, okay, well that we think that works. And so we were able to get that tied up and then COVID hit. So there was some renegotiation. Um and it worked out. We got it closed and it was in the opportunity zone structure. So so that worked as well. So we we learned how that works. Luckily, our CPA was an early adopter and the attorney that we usually use was an early adopter to Opportunity Zone. So we kind of got this major bump in, in knowledge early. And so we bought those eight deals in the OZ structure and got to work. There's a way with the OZ that you can buy old buildings and fix them up and it, everything qualifies. So we said, okay, now we own eight buildings. That's what we're going to do. We're going to buy them, fix them up. It's what we've always done. It just has a little tax structure around it. And we think it's enough to move the needle in this neighborhood. So it'll work. How many units was that? Like give 185. Us... Okay. Yeah. On three streets. Okay. Um, and so this area to set the stage is kind of three blocks by five blocks. Um, it's just across the Trinity River from downtown Dallas. It's just to the northeast of the Bishop Arts District. Uh, there's a big public investment called the Southern Gateway Deck Park, which is connecting Oak Cliff with the Dallas Zoo. It's just like Clyde Warren Park. So it's, it's a deck park over uh, I-30. And uh, I'm sorry, over I-35. And then to the north of us, there's a really big development called Oak Farms Dairy Project um, that's been owned by Sienda Partners. But uh, they haven't announced it yet, so I won't announce it for them. A very large developer, uh, a national developer, one of the biggest, just bought eight acres there. 
and um, and they're marketing more for sale out of that project. So we know dirt's going to start moving north of us, huge public company to the south of us, uh, public development to the south of us, Bishop Arts to the west, downtown Dallas to the east, and the trail system in the Trinity River Basin is is finally getting completed. So we've got all this stuff surrounding us, and we're the hole in the donut. Mm. So we said, okay, now we've got these eight properties. They suck, but we've got to make them better. Um, so we went in and did what we've always done. We got renovated, spending 50000 a unit, uh, adding washer dryers, fixing all the mechanical electric plumbing, new windows, new foundation, like, you know, gold plate these things. So they're 1960s buildings, but when we're done, they're brand new. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of hold your breath and say, all right, did we do enough in this formerly really rough, vacant, blighted neighborhood? Did we do enough to get the rents up? And all of a sudden, we started leasing and we got two bucks a foot on the first building. And we had pro forma at like $1.60 a foot. Mm. So, oh, <laughs> we did it. All right. So, took a breath, <laughs> kind of high fived, and said, all right, let's keep going. So we immediately put four more buildings under contract, so another 100 units, and we went to our banker. First, we said, well, we can do a capital call to our investors and get more money. And then we said, man, OZ structure, our investors probably aren't going to have more capital gains. So this is going to be hard to do what we would normally want to do. So we said, all right, well, if we were performing $1.60, but we got two bucks, I can probably twist my banker's arm. So I went to the banker and said, hey, man, I want to buy these four more properties, but I want you to finance everything. And the first banker said no. So I went away from the first banker and uh, he said yes. So we bought another 100 units and got the rehab financed. So the equity in the first 185 units basically got another 100 units for free. Mm. Um, So that deal's looking good now. Mm -hmm. And all of that is in entity number one. Entity number one, phase one. Okay. That really signed on for the risk of buying 1960s buildings and renovating 1960s buildings, but didn't sign on for development risk. And so we had to look at that separately. And we wanted to go develop because there was a lot of vacant land in this neighborhood. So we immediately spotted five development sites that we could put together We had to put them together from like 14 different sellers. But we knew that we could put these five kind of one acre development sites together. Some of them were adjacent to the buildings that we had just bought. And so then we got started buying development sites. And we went for it. We raised the money from a separate group of investors. Now, a lot of them overlapped from the first group, but got started buying those. And you know, over the next few months, raised the money and bought the development sites, started working on a development plan. Were you buying the development sites with cash or were you financing cash. those? Okay. When you say uh, we we put together 14 sites, that sounds easier than done. How did you get it done? Were you knocking on doors, cold calling, having a somebody go under the radar? How'd you do it all without kind of tipping your hat of so what you're up to? A little bit was kind of bull in a china shop. Um, So some of the property had been listed for sale for a very long time because nobody would go into this neighborhood. 
Um, either it had had a price tag on it that nobody was willing to pay. And we just finally stepped up and said, yeah, that number makes sense all day. Like, here's the contract. Right. Um, and then to complete the parcel, you needed the hard corner or you needed whatever. Um, and so then you had to knock on the door. And, but a lot of the times the, the folks who own the hard corner had never been approached to sell. Right. And so it was a fairly easy conversation. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, we never played the straw man. We never hid behind an entity. We just, just, an offer. just bull rushed it. Yep. Yeah. How long did it take you to put that all together? Six months. Okay. Yeah. So we did it quickly. Yeah. Um, but yes, we did have one broker who really helped us with the Davidson Bogle guys. Yep. Um, and Love those guys. Yeah. I told them one day they'd get some credit. Yeah. <laughs> Here it is right now, Edward. <laughs> who was it? Uh, Scott Lake, Mike, Mike Lester, and, and Jake Milner. Yeah. Mike's great. Yep. Scott's great. Jake's great. And then let's just take one step back because I think this is an important piece of the project. And I think this is something Dallas has done such a wonderful job of. This area already had a master overlay zoning. Yep. So describe kind of what that means and maybe the the headaches you didn't have to go through because that was already there. Yeah, and it played a big role in kind of where we bought. Um, so about six years ago, City of Dallas went in with some some real forethought and kind of the area between where the bridge comes over from downtown all the way through to, to the Bishop Arts District. They put a PD in place with master zoning. And so most of this neighborhood was zoned for either a three-story, five-story, or eight-story mixed-use development, which gives you a ton of latitude to, to build a whole lot of different things. But, you know, so you, it's one of the few areas in Dallas where you could buy a single-family home and build eight stories. And 20 stories in some of the little pockets. Um, not that you could fit it and park it, but, you know, I just make that example. Like, where else can you can you build 20 stories after you buy a single family home? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it takes a lot of the guesswork out of it. You know, is the city going to allow me to do what I want to do? No, that's off the table. The, the biggest question mark in this neighborhood, because it's a 120-year-old neighborhood, one of the oldest in Dallas, it's like, what do the water lines and sewer lines look like? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we, once we learn what that spider web is, uh, we, had to, we had to drop two deals um, because of it. Because, I mean, it's hard to build, in this case, like, you know, both of the ones that we dropped were real small. It's hard to build a 20-unit deal when you might have to dig 200 yards to get a good water connection. Right. Um, those those numbers don't work because all the utilities and infrastructure are one they're from the 60s so they're probably old and 1920s 1920s yeah so they're probably old and you know already have those issues plus they're not there to service a 20-story building they're there to service a three-bedroom house or yeah. whatever okay and, and to everybody listening we are going to fully cover opportunity zones but we're not there yet um I think this will be an interesting part because I think there's a lot of people that that own real estate that could be developed. I've been vocal about it on Twitter. A lot of people have. Being able to buy real estate, even buy and rehab real estate, is a totally different skill set than buying a piece of dirt and seeing something come to fruition. Yep. And we just were talking before we turned on the mic that you know you have this land, but you're not going to actually try and develop at all. You're going to try and maybe partner yep. with a developer. So let's maybe talk about how you plan to go through these sites 
and maybe kind of talk about it in a way that could teach somebody that if you own a piece of land, this is how you might be able to do development without having to become a true developer. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we've never developed anything. Uh, so my, my business partner and I have, have never built anything from the ground up. Now, my business partner, his his property management company does construction management. They do 50 million bucks a year of construction management. Wow. But that is cabinets and countertops and floors and, you know, exterior paint and all that stuff, right? So could they build a new building? Yeah, probably. Certainly once the foundation's poured. But a huge part of the development is getting the foundation, you know, getting to the point where you can pour the foundation. Right. And we recognized that before we even bought the land. So then it was, all right, well, who's the right partner to bring in um, who shares our vision for the area, who can help us get these done so we're not spending our time learning, so we're not risking our investors' dollars. You know, this wasn't just our money. It's, it's investors' dollars, too. And so, yeah, then, you know, we started just working our network saying, you know, hey, Chris, who's the, who's the right guy that we need to talk to um, who we can partner with? So we'll share the development fees. We'll share the GP. You know, let's go do this right. And so we got connected with a handful of people. Um, and so essentially it was a guy who had worked for a big development uh, company who had just hung his own shingle, who hadn't done his own deal before outside of that firm, uh, was working on two, but who'd essentially built thousands of units, both on site and from the office and was ready to go and said, great, that's, you know, that's the first hire. And now that we're working on more, there's another guy who just left, you know, one of the biggest firms in the country and was running the whole state of Texas. And he was in the same, same boat. Um, and are they working for you or are they just partnering with you? Yeah, they're partners. Yeah. Um, and so essentially they've hung their own shingle, but these are, you know, our deals that that they're doing with us. Okay. So you have the piece of land. It's already zoned. You know what you can build. You go and partner with someone that kind of knows the hundred steps it takes to make this a building that people could occupy. Who is uh, working with the architects? who is picking the contractor, who is doing all that? Is that you? Is that the partner? Developer, yeah. Okay. So what is your, I guess, maybe let's, um, maybe the question is, now that you own the land, mm -hmm. what are you responsible for? You And you've picked a partner that knows how to turn this into a reality. Like what position do you play from here on out? Or is, yeah. is your job kind of to watch this thing play out at this point? Yeah. So, well, OZ is different than normal development, right? Right. Because it's a, 10 to 15 year deal. Right. So the responsibility ebbs and flows. Um, so on the front end, you've got to legally structure the deal, raise the money, make sure that you're compliant, um, get the financing in place. And, and we do that. So um, my partner and I are the balance sheet for the, for the deal. We're putting up the, the money prior to the land getting closed. You know, we're handling all that stuff. Then the developer steps in for, you know, 18 to 24 months. And then once the CO's delivered, uh, once once the building's delivered with a CO, then we take back over <clears throat> for asset management, property management through year 15, yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever it might be, um, and dealing with the investors the whole way through. So yeah, it's a, there's definitely an ebb and flow throughout that, that whole period. And I'm assuming in that structure, you kind of say, look, we bought all this land, 
I'm making up numbers, but we paid a dollar for it. We think it's maybe worth $2 by the time we go to develop. So you're probably, are you contributing it into a new partnership or the developers just coming in as kind of fee developers, they're getting paid a fee to do it and then they're out? Essentially, um, yeah. And so the land we contribute at, you know, we don't, it doesn't get marked up. It's just passed in at, at whatever our cost was. Got it. Um, so yeah, the developer is benefiting based on that and they're getting part of the development fees and then they're getting part of the, of the promote, but that's a bucket that could be a, a ways away Oh yeah, yeah, on these OZ deals. Oh yeah. <laughs> 10 to 15 years, man. Right. That, uh, I know Moses Kagan likes to hear that, but there's a lot of people that can't see longer than three years out. Right. So we're going to about teach them a lesson. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, CREmodels.com. That is the letter C, the letter R, the letter E, models.com. If you aren't familiar with CRE Models, they are a real estate financial modeling and due diligence firm that specializes in bringing an institutional process to small and mid-sized firms who are raising capital. Because of their extensive experience with large clients, they really make it easy to look professional and polished when raising debt and equity capital. If you have a substantial deal pipeline, use CRE Models for expert due diligence, lease abstracts, financial models, physical due diligence, books and records, and more. They can handle any property type from multifamily to commercial to self-storage or really anything. With CRE models, we send them all the financial info we have on a deal and they will review and tell us what is missing. This really allows us to focus on the deal structure and we can trust them to jump in as they're an extension of our own firm. You can get in touch with CRE Models at CREmodels.com or call them at 201-252-7487. When you talk to them, remember to ask about their 360-degree analysis team and the real estate technology integration services as well. And now back to the show. So you you picked your partner. This thing's going to get built. I think now's a good time to start talking about how opportunity zones work and why they have to be 10 to 15 years. So let's just maybe start with the most elementary of questions. What is an opportunity zone? Well, there's a couple answers to that question, okay. which is why there's a lot of confusion, Okay, right? So an opportunity zone physically is a place on a map. Okay. That, That's it. That is, that is uh, designated by the federal government, the local government. Yeah. So the map is now published by the federal government. The, the places were chosen by uh, governors and designated by governors in 2017 and 2018. So when it's a federal government, the Opportunity Zone tax legislation was made by the federal government, but they said, hey, every governor is allowed to take census tracts in their state and decide which census tract is turned into an opportunity zone. Okay. But that's where there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of issues because some governors were very political about it and were lobbied. And so, you know, all of Fort Capitals deals were, were in opportunity zones all of a sudden. Right. And, and so now there's a lot of heat and it, potentially in this new, uh, new, le- new opportunity zone legislation, you know, the, the companies that lobbied the hardest and, and maybe ended up with these, uh, wealthy districts 
in opportunity zones, they might get pulled out. Okay, wait. So there's a new legislation coming. Yeah. Okay, what's that? <laughs> you want to go there now or later? Oh, oh we're gonna. We're just. This is. We're we're in the meat of it. Yeah. Well, maybe before we go there, uh, one question would be, and and this was actually maybe it falls into the new was once these governors selected these zones, is this it in perpetuity or do they get to select new zones every 10 years and it's kind of this evolving thing? As of right now, the Opportunity Zone program has a, an end date. Okay. Um, and so, and the end date is 2047 when it ends, but the map itself disappears in, in 2028. Okay. Well, okay. You said there's multiple answers. So answer one was it's this place on a map. Yep. What other answers are there? So the legislation itself creates a whole bunch of different things that folks refer to as opportunity zones. So there's opportunity zone funds, opportunity zone businesses, and opportunity zone property. So when you hear someone say opportunity zone, they can be talking about any of that, okay. which is why this stuff's so confusing. Leave it to the government to, to confuse the hell out of it. <laughs> well, and and the answer is opportunity zone funds um, is a misnomer. So it's not a fund at all, because if you made a big capital gain last year, you can start your own opportunity zone fund. It's not a fund. It's an entity with special language. And anybody can have their own, which I'm an advocate of. I have my own. Um, okay, what's an opportunity zone fund? It's an entity with special language that that you put your money into. So let me what money? Yeah, so let me give you the the broad way that it works, the easiest way to explain it. Okay. So if you make money, if you have a capital gain from selling absolutely anything, so crypto, real estate, stock, um, art, anything that you want, and you have a capital gain and you owe taxes from, from that capital gain. If you, instead of keeping that money, you put it into an opportunity zone fund, then you no longer owe that tax in 2022 or 2023, whenever it would be due. You now owe that tax in 2027. So you get a deferral, um, an interest-free loan from the government. In the fund, once the money is in the fund, the fund has to invest it into Opportunity Zone property, either uh, real estate or a business. And the business, the, the easiest way to do it is real estate. So there's three types of real estate you can invest in inside of the map. So once you invest in real estate on the map, you can buy a vacant building, you can buy a building that has to be renovated substantially, or you can do a new development. So those are the three things that you can do. And once you do that, you don't have to pay your taxes till 2027. And that's great. But the bigger benefit is on that opportunity zone investment, once you own it for 10 years, then you don't have to pay taxes on that, capital gains taxes. So all the stuff that we've done in, in Lake Cliff, we hold that through 2032 and sell it. There's no capital gains tax on that for our investors. Further, we will do cost seg and bonus depreciation on all that stuff. 
And so we'll pass through a ton of depreciation to our investors, just like all good real estate operators do, right? The big difference though, is that when most real estate operators sell their stuff, then their investors have to recapture that depreciation. In OZ, you never have to recapture. Mm. So it's an enormous, it, it, depreciation acts more like a tax credit than like a write-off because you, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to recapture it, right? So the other way that we really think about this is when folks invest with us, so we've come up with this unique structure where a lot of our investors have their own funds. So I would say, hey, Chris, you made a bunch of money, start your own fund. Your fund can invest with me. Well, somebody else might have made 20,000 bucks selling crypto or whatever, and they want to invest 20,000 bucks. Not that I'm going to take a $20,000 check, but say that they did. And so they invest with me into a fund that I manage. Well, great. So that person is only going to get the depreciation benefit from one deal. But you, you were smart and you started your own fund. So you invest in this deal. Now I do a refinance. I send money back to you. Okay. So you get all this money back and you have a couple options. You can send that money back to yourself out of your fund, which is fine, but it, that would be like pulling money out of your 401k without a penalty. Why would you do that? It's in the most tax-advantaged account possible. Leave it in your OZ fund and put it into another OZ deal because you're investing in real estate where you won't have to pay capital gains and you never have to recapture the depreciation. So if every time I do a refinance or every time I uh, send out a big chunk of cash flow to my investors, they think of it like, hey, I'm going to put that into another OZ deal and more and more and more. Well, all of a sudden they build up more depreciation benefits and eventually they're not paying capital gains. The value of the depreciation. On the initial capital gains, not the capital gains from the deals that they're in. No, the on, the, on the future ones, right? Yeah. Yeah. But the the point is like the value of the depreciation losses that they create on multiple OZ investments can be much greater than the amount that they initially funded their OZ fund with. You can be rolling with free money based on the depreciation losses that you create. What goes into the OZ fund, the actual gain, uh -huh. the entire gain, mm -hmm. or is it just- the gain. Okay, the whole gain. Yep. But yeah, so if you buy Apple stock for 100 grand, you sell it for 200 grand, you are only allowed to put 100 into your OZ fund. This happened to, to us last year. What if you actually never, um, what if you flipped a deal, like you flipped a contract basically, so you, you only owned it for like a second, second and it was a double close situation mm -hmm. and the whole gain, well, one, I already know it's a short-term gain. We know that, but does that gain qualify for OZ? I would think so. Okay. Would, I mean, yeah, your CPA call it a short-term capital gain? Yeah. Yeah. That's, let's go. It's OZ money. Okay, so you create a gain. How long do you have from the time that the gain is created to invest it in an OZ? It's one thing to turn it into an OZ fund, but how long until it actually has to be deployed into something? Yeah, well, there, 
there's it's a two part question. Okay. Because there's a clock to put money into an OZ fund. Okay. And then there's a clock to put money from an OZ fund into an OZ business or an OZ investment. So the clock for for you to put money into an OZ fund uh, starts the day that the gain was created, more or less. So if you personally own a stock or crypto or something like that in your personal name, then it's 180 days from when the gain happened. But if it's in an entity that sends you a K1, there's three different clocks and you have to pick one of them. Okay. So it's 180 days from when the gain happened. To, to put it in a fund or to To deploy. put it in a fund. Okay. Yeah. So if it's in an entity that sends you a K1, it's 180 days from when the gain happened or 180 days from the end of the tax year of that entity or 180 days from when the first tax filing is due for that entity. So we're sitting here at the end of April. If one of your entities sold something today, you would either have to put it into an OZ fund by the end of October of this year, or there would be a two-month period where you couldn't put it into an OZ fund. Then you would have from January 1st to essentially September 10th of next year where you could put it into an OZ fund. How do you get to September 10th? March 15th is probably when your first tax filing is due. Ah, gotcha. And so then you have six months from there. So if I sold something today Uh in late April 2022, you're telling me I have until... September 2023 to place those funds into an opportunity zone fund. Except for a black hole at the end of 2022. Because you have six months from the day the gain happens. Mm-hmm. And then you have six months after the end of the, the calendar year for the entity. But there's a black hole in the calendar in the in the three clocks between sep- the end of September and the end of the the calendar year for the entity when those three clocks don't match up so you have to be careful and they're just saying actually ask your legal advisor which one to to use yeah okay let's just say the gain happened in december i'll take my situation it happened in october of 2021 okay and let's say i hadn't put it into a fund yet but now my uh my CPA sends me my tax estimate. Uh, I'm not filing my tax return, but sends me a tax estimate on April 15th. And I'm like, hey, I'm not going to pay it because I'm still going to put it in this Opportunity Zone fund. Mm-hmm. And my CPA is like, well, you haven't created anything yet. And I'm like, I know I'm going to do it. What do I have to do to prove that I'm going to do it and forego paying that tax and therefore the penalties associated with not paying in on time? Yeah. So, and I have some investors who have done this and, uh, I, I personally did this cause I, my estimate was based on making an OZ fund investment, but mm-hmm. I still haven't proven to the government that I made an OZ investment cause right. I haven't filed my taxes. Right. Um, so when you file your taxes, there's form, uh, 8997, I believe, which says I made an OZ investment. Here's the EIN of the OZ fund that I put it into. Here's how much money I put into it. And, and so that's part of your, that's part of your personal tax return. Once my money is in my fund or 
maybe I say, I don't want to create my own fund. I'm going to put it yep. in your deal. So how long does it have to get out of your fund into an investment? Sorry, I didn't answer that earlier. Um, so your OZ fund, any OZ fund has to have 90% of its assets in qualified opportunities on property. Which there's a whole nother definition for that. But essentially, you only want to have 10% of your OZ fund in cash. So the other 90% needs to get out the door. Okay. And there's a clock to, to do that. So it's tested that that 90-10 test happens on June 30th and December 31st of every year. The first test doesn't count. So in the previous ex previous example, say that you set up the, the Powers Opportunity Zone Fund in on September 1st of this year, right? It's got a nice ring to it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so you set it up on September 1st of this year. Well, you have to get 90% of it out the door. And you're tested December 31st and June 30th. Well, the test on December 31st, since it's the first one, it doesn't count. So you set up your fund September 1, you have until June 29th of the following year to get your money out the door. And out the door means either buying a property or putting it with you. Putting it, yeah, into a qualified opportunities on business. As an LP. Yep, that's right. I'd be an LP in your deal. Yep. Okay. And to be clear, the tax that you would owe on that initial gain is now deferred out five more years. So because I placed it with you or because I bought a property, I'm now pushing that taxable amount out five years. Still due, but deferred through 2027. Yeah, and it's not five years. It's a It's a date. It's a date. Yep. Okay, it's a date for everybody. So if you're doing this in 2025, it's still due in 2027. Yep. So the goal is to get in this stuff now. Yeah. And get in line, baby. Yeah. And so when the program started, actually, if you put your money in before 2019, you got a 5% discount on your taxes. And if you put your money in before the end of 2021, you got an additional 10% discount on your taxes. So all my investors who put their money in before the end of 2021, they're getting a 15% discount on their tax bill when it comes due in 2027. So it was juicier back then. That being said, the biggest benefit to this program is the 10% step up. I mean, the 10-year step up. No capital gains due and no recapture depreciation. Like far and away, that's the biggest benefit. But folks who invested before 2021 do get additional juice. Now, that leads us naturally into the next, the new legislation, the extension, which brings back that discount and also extends the deferral to 2029. And it's retroactive. So anybody who invested in an OZ deal in 2021 or 2020, their deferral is no longer to 2027. It's now to 2029. Plus, anybody who invests today or yesterday gets a 15% discount if they stay in the deal on their on their tax bill. So you you get 15% discount if you do it today? Uh, if this legislation passes, yeah. So it makes it better? Makes it better. Is that the only thing being contested in the new legislation? No, it's not. Um, those are the good things. So the extension of the deferral and the the retroactive discount for everybody. Okay. Um, the stuff that will hurt some people, it doesn't affect my deals at all. But essentially, like we talked about before, some of the opportunity zones, 
were placed in areas that maybe don't need opportunity zones, right? Because weren't they based on the 2010 census? Yeah, yeah, so we haven't talked about this at all. Like the opportunity zone program is meant to take, to give tax advantages to folks who invest in areas that need an uplift, yeah. right? So low-income areas, areas that have poverty, areas that historically have not had investment, and you get a tax advantage for making a long-term investment in that area, which is great. The problem was when governors designated some of these areas, they were lobbied really hard. And so now folks are getting tax advantages for investing in areas that are already really good, <laughs> right? And, and that's not good. Yeah. Um, and so this, yeah, <laughs> who knew? And so now this new legislation is basically saying, hey, if, if a census tract has above 130% AMI, it's going to get pulled. Okay. Now, if you've already made an OZ investment in that area, it's going to get grandfathered. Yeah. But no more. I know you don't have a crystal ball. Maybe you do. If you do, will you share it? Are they, do you know if governors are going to be able to designate new districts in the future? Well, so the legislation says that anything, any state that loses a zone will get a new zone. But will there just be added zones? The last part of the legislation talks about, so when I file an OZ tax return, I have to talk about how many jobs were created, how much, you know, so it's all this measurement stuff. Mm -hmm. Because right now there's nothing about opportunity zones that measures the impact, which is not good. I believe that everything that we're doing in Oak Cliff and all the other projects that I know about, I know that they're making a measurable difference in these neighborhoods. This is an area that for decades has had no new development. It's been awful. I know it's better now, but there's no way the government can measure that based on anything that I'm reporting. Right. So I think that once this stuff is measured, how are they going to measure it? Taxable value to this? Uh, well, stuff you're reporting on your federal return, right? So what census tract are you working in? Mm -hmm. um, you know, how much uh, they already know the, the capital improvements that you're making, what type of development are you doing? You know, it's pretty basic questions, but even measuring the basic stuff is gonna tell them the impact of the program. Yeah. And I think having the impact of the program gives them a lot more incentive to say, yeah, of course we should be giving these tax breaks. Look at the value that we're getting in exchange for them. But it's a bipartisan program, right? So you got Republicans that like it because it's a tax break. You got Democrats that like it because you're putting money into low-income areas and that's what you're seeing on the extension as well it's like it's doing more of the same thing the original bill did and there's a bunch of people behind it and so i think yes there is a likelihood that it gets extended okay so my gain goes into this fund i now know that i can kick the can down the road on when i owe that tax that tax is going to be due minus the uh discount you said that might be applied to it yep so that's, let's compartmentalize that. Then this investment turns out great. It makes another million dollars. Mm -hmm. That tax in 10 years, or that gain that I get in 10 years, no tax. Correct. And I also get all the, depre and I, there's no recapture on the depreciation that I accumulated over that time. Correct. And if I refinanced you money and sent it back to your OZ fund and you put that out into another deal, you get all that depreciation and don't recapture it. 
And and when is the clock stop of when I can deploy capital into opportunity zones? 2027 or 2042? 2028. 2028. Well, 2028 is when you can stop buying real estate in opportunity zone. Got it. Because that's when the map disappears. Got it. But we don't know if they're going to create a new map or correct extend it or whatever. Correct. You're talking dirty to me. <laughs> so yeah, these deals are pretty neat, right? Because like what we're doing in, in Oak Cliff, I mean, that can be a, a really long-term development plan. And we're seeing that in other places um, where you can buy a huge swath of an area and you can do renovation of old buildings. You can buy land next to it. And I mean, this can be a very long-term development. So yeah, if you were to buy something like that in 2028, you could continue building and depreciating for a very long time after 2028. Okay, I kind of skipped over the, like the most important part here, though. You've kind of alluded to this, but let's get into it. You can't just buy the property and and everything is voila. You got to do stuff with the property. Yeah. And you mentioned vacant building land. So I kind of want to ask two questions. In your case, you've you've acquired all these properties in one deal, in one entity. No. Does, I guess, does each property stand on its own or could you just go buy like 10 parcels of land, some apartments, all this stuff. And as long as the collective of the entire project meets hurdles, it works or is it deal by deal? It's complicated as hell. Yeah. yeah. So like in our Oak Cliff deal, there's three separate org charts. Um, so it's technically it's three separate deals. Um, so we call it phase one, phase two and phase three. Okay. There's three holding companies. So each holding company has multiple SPEs. So each deal is in an SP, each property is in an SPE and each holding company has, you know, 30 or 40 investors. Okay. You said earlier, you can buy a vacant property, you can buy land, or you can buy a building that needs total renovation. What do you have to do after you've acquired a piece of property to, there's a business plan you're going to have to execute to have met the standards of the Opportunity Zone Fund so you can get all these benefits. Yeah. What has to happen? Yeah, and it's different for each one of those. Right? Yeah. So with a vacant building, if it's if it's been vacant for three years or more, then you don't really have to do anything. You just have to start operating it. So there's, Does that mean putting a tenant in it? Yeah, so there's no dollar amount, though. Oh, really? That you have to I've spend. never heard this part. Yeah, so it's called original use. Okay, so sorry, dumb questions. Building has been vacant. You're proving to the government it's been vacant for three years or more, which means no tenants that have been paying rent. Yep. Right? You buy it. Let's just say it's a total dog of a building. Do you have to put any dollars into fixing it up? Nope. Is the only thing to qualify you have to get a tenant in there that's now operating? Yep. And then it's qualified opportunities on property. But it has to have been vacant for three years. Yep. And typically, a build, oh, let's just be fair, a building that's been vacant for three years in a market like need this some probably money. needs some money in <laughs> that's it. That's right. You don't have some you know, great building on Main and Main. That's right. That's, okay. Second, piece of land. Yep. What has to happen? So, and there were some specific examples in the legislation, um, and, and I always screw up the wording, but essentially it has to be improved uh, to it's it's not substantially improved but it's it's a word that basically means they don't want you doing a covered land place they don't want you making it into a parking lot okay just to hold it for for long-term benefit okay so they want you to upgrade the land and and put something on there that 
you know, has some has some heft to it and actually like benefits the area. If I bought a piece of land for a million dollars, though, how much would I have to invest? There's no dollar amount. Okay, I'm going to go back to where I had always thought was I thought you had to improve it X amount. No, nope, there's yeah, there's no dollar amount on it. Okay, so you buy a piece of land in an opportunity zone. All you have to do is create some type of activity on it, some type of value. Yeah, you have to you have to do something that's right? generating a dollar's worth of income. I don't even know that there's an income like qualification. You just have to improve it more than a minimal amount or there's a there's a phrase in the legislation that says like you have to give it an uplift. So if I bought one of these pieces of land in in our project Lake Cliff, mm-hmm. I'm saying our because we're on this <laughs> podcast. Come on. If you want to let me in, come on it, in. Let's just go. Great. Yeah. But let's just say you put a a damn dog park. Yep. It's a nonprofit. Yeah. So I'm I'm certain that a dog park would fall into that covered land play, you know, okay. example. And they would say, Hey, look, you're getting cute. Don't do that. Yeah. But if you were to put up um you know, spend some real money or, or spend even a, a small amount of money, but you, you built a, a permanent lemonade stand, right? Yeah. And, you know, podcast studio, yeah, podcast studio, right? Something then can that meet the smell test? Sure. And who's, who's the judge of that? The government, the IRS. So there's no case law on opportunity zones and, yeah. and there's certainly gray area in a lot of it. Um, okay. And this is one of the areas where there's gray areas. So what do you want to do? You want to make your intentions very well known. Uh, you want to try and be on the on the white side of the black and white, right? right. And you want to have a tax attorney, a CPA sign off on everything that you do. Okay. And when you're playing with investor money, you don't want to cut any corners. Yeah. If if it's the Powers OZ fund and you want to cut some corners, go for it. You're making this sound better and better. If I took that piece of land to five different CPAs across the country and said, I want to build a lemonade stand on it. Would all five CPAs give me a, you can do that? Or was it in the eye of the beholder? It's it's in the eye of the beholder. Okay. And I would so go to- We're uh, still in the wild west here. A tax bit. attorneys, not CPAs in general, I think. Okay. Talk to a tax attorney. I think so. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, then we buy a, we'll call it a decrepit building, uh-huh. something with challenges. What do you have to do there? Yeah. So this one is more cut and dry than the development. So- to an extent. So the rule is you have to substantially improve it. It's very similar in a lot of ways to the historic tax credit uh, deal. So if you buy a building for, if you buy a building and the land for a million five, then what they say is subtract out the value of the land mm-hmm. and you have to double the value of the building. Mm-hmm. So if I say, okay, I'm buying this for a million five, the land is worth a million, the building is worth 500,000. I have to spend 500,000 to improve the the building. Okay. But there's no number in the legislation that says how you value the land versus the building. So again it comes down to are you applying the same standard to every deal that you're doing and getting there right in a reasonable fashion? So if every deal I do that I buy for a million five, I say the land is a million four ninety nine, they're going to have an issue with it, right? Yeah. Um, you just have to. Do you get a third party appraisal? Or yeah. Something? Yeah. And or maybe it's a BOV, or maybe you're taking the the land and improvement value on the tax rolls and using that same ratio. 
it just has to be clear cut. Hey, here's what we're doing. And we're applying that across everything that we do. What if you uh, already owned property in an opportunity zone prior to them being, do you qualify? No. I actually knew the answer to that because I owned a property in an opportunity <laughs> zone fund and I was hoping you would tell me differently. Well, so that being said, there's some, I mean, you could develop it and sell it right before you get a CO and there's folks that will pay a lot of money right before the CO is issued because they can get, you know, the vacant deal that I told you about a minute ago, Yeah, they qualify for the vacant loophole if they buy it the minute before a CO is issued. Mm. And so if you go develop your piece of land in the OZ and then sell it right before a CO, some of these funds will pay you a pretty penny for that. Okay. Um, the other way around it is, hey, I own a bunch of land in the OZ, but I've owned it for 10 years. I'm going to sell it to a third party that's going to ground lease it back to me for 99 years at a fair market rate, right? One that I can live with. Well, now I have a leasehold interest in the OZ. And I can develop on my leasehold interest and I can use the gains from the sale lease back <laughs> to, to put into my OZ fund. So you can make that circular. Um, but in general, it's hard because there's related party rules that suck. Okay, there's probably some people that if they've made it this far are going, man, I already paid my tax. Yeah. And I, I shouldn't have done that because now I want to go create my opportunity zone fund. If you've already paid your tax, is there a way to get the money back and, and elect to go this route instead? Yeah, so if you paid your tax in April, you can still invest into an OZ fund right now and amend your you know, 2022 return and file that form 8997 and you can get a refund or apply the overpayment to next year's okay. or, or next quarterly or whatever. All right, we're going to take some Twitter questions. Okay. This has been fascinating. Okay, what is the break-even point between OZ fund fees and simply paying the capital gains tax and investing outside of an OZ fund? Do you remember that question? Yeah, roughly. I'm going to change the question a little bit. But this is your episode. <laughs> I've worked with a CPA for the past, like, month or two, actually a guy I found on Twitter. Um, and it's a guy who used to work at a really big CPA firm, worked on LIHTC stuff, worked on solar tax credit stuff. And he's helped me take the pro forma for one of our deals, feed it into a model that's turned into a dozen tabs and spit out, hey, what's the true tax adjusted IRR for a deal versus somebody just pays their taxes but does the same deal, just not in an OZ structure. And it's blown my mind because you can take like a, a bad case scenario for one of our deals and say, okay, well, interest rates go up. So we're going to refinance this deal at, at six and a half percent, right? And then we're going to hold it. And when we sell it, we're going to sell it at an eight and a half cap. Okay. Well, if we do that, we send the money through the waterfall. I think that the deal might have a, you know, 9% IRR, 10% IRR on a 10 year hold. It's not good, right? It's going to have a, a 1.4 multiple. Okay. That's on a traditional deal. No OZ tax benefits, nothing. 
Okay, well, now they did it in the OZ structure. So what happened? Well, now it's going to have a 2.4, 2.5 multiple, and it's going to have a 24 IRR. Well, nothing changed, right? Same, same interest rate, same bad cap rate, same everything, but it's just the OZ tax benefits. They're, it's super powerful. So in my opinion, if you're doing a real estate deal that just like doesn't suck horribly, like all it has to do is just make it, you're getting this huge uplift from the taxes. And, and so our goal in these deals is like to do good real estate deals that do really well in good locations that we think have tailwinds. And then the OZ actually gets amplified even further. So if you do a deal that has a 10-year IRR of, of 20, well, then the, the IRR in the OZ structure actually goes to, to 38 or 40. It's like it gets amplified way more. And that's because you're not paying tax. At the end. At the end. And yeah. you're not paying the recapture on all the depreciation. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is OZ funds are good. <laughs> I mean, if we've made it this far, yeah. you're a fan. Yeah. You, you got to do good deals, right? And it's it's hard to find deals. And I think it takes a, a unique skill set in a lot of cases to to do the good deals. Is all you're focused on OZ? Like, would you even do a deal anymore that's not yeah. an OZ fund? Yeah. But like we kind of started the episode on, um, you know, the, the heavy value add stuff that's just like out there, it doesn't pencil. So right now, I'm not not looking for it. the oz is is awesome you're offending the hell out of people right now buying value add deals outside of opportunities well like I'm kidding. Get, I'm yeah kidding. Hey. um <laughs> i'm kidding yeah i don't i don't yeah. love it maybe we've already answered this one how does a gp take advantage of opportunity zones can he or she roll in fees and get the same tax treatments yes Okay. That's that simple. <laughs> well, so, so, you, so I have my own OZ fund. Um, so the way that I do it is uh, I'm investing as uh, an investor member and a sponsor member into these, into these hold codes, like I, I talked about. And so I'm getting some depreciation benefits when they get passed through, which I won't recapture. But then once I eventually get into the promote, um, you know, any income that flows through, I'm paying taxes on with, with depreciation benefits. So hopefully not much, but then after a 10 year hold, uh, my promote should not be taxed. Okay. The promote's not taxed. Yeah. What about the fees that you get along the way? Like, they're taxed. They're taxed, but could you throw them in as like, could you, is there a way to not have them taxed? Assuming you wouldn't be able to take them and live off of them. You'd have to be rolling them back into the deal. Maybe, um, haven't thought of it. Okay but maybe we'll leave that for part two. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Every, every guest gets a part two eventually. So our structures, um, is fairly aggressive as far as the pref and promote structure. Um, and so I think the only way to do that would be like change the pref and promote and lower the fees, which our fees aren't much anyway. And I don't know that anybody would like that. This is a dumb question. I think I know the answer, but if your gain was a million bucks mm -hmm. and you only roll half a million. You can you can obviously roll a portion of a gain and you're just not taxed on that portion. Yep. It doesn't always have to be the entire thing. Correct. And it's a huge difference between 1031 and OZ, right? 
if if you sell a building for two million bucks and you want to do a, a 1031, um, you know, you've got to roll every penny of it in into your next deal. Whereas with OZ, it's it's uh, you know, you can roll a hundred thousand bucks, whatever. Okay, we're gonna continue on the theme of dumb questions. You put a million dollar gain into an OZ fund and you go buy a million dollar piece of land. Let's just say it's met all the criteria. You paid all cash. Mm -hmm. Could you immediately put a five hundred thousand dollar loan on it and pull five hundred thousand out? Yeah. So there's something called a uh, a disguised sale rule, and so you're not allowed to pull cash out of your OZ fund and send it to yourself within the first twenty four months. Um, they they don't like that. But you could refinance, and I'm doing this actually personally. So we bought a deal all cash, we're refinancing it now and sending it back to our fund. And then the fund is investing in another deal. Okay. So don't break the seal on your fund for 24 months. Okay. Let's finish on um, kind of the, just the Dallas market. You're an expert. Um, I'm really curious to learn more about what you're seeing and, and maybe I'll break it into kind of two chunks. First being this, uh, this amazing deal that you've put together, you redid these apartments, you thought you'd get a dollar sixty and you got two bucks. What's driving that? And and are these folks that you're changing the area so much that they're saying, man, I would have never lived in that area before and now I'm willing to, to move in there? Are these the same residents that are now paying that? Like, how does, I mean, you literally are 33% above Performa. What's driving all this stuff? Yeah, I think a huge part of it is it's not, you know, me who grew up in Dallas saying, oh, well, this area is cool now. I'm going to move there. I think so much of it is people who are moving here from other places and they look on a map and they say, well, this area is convenient to jobs, bars and restaurants, highways. It's right where I want to be. And it looks really nice. I'm, I'm happy living there yep. because I think that historically, somebody who's lived in Dallas or lived in the area may have a stigma with that area. But folks who have never lived here, all they see is all the stuff I just said. Right. And and I think that that's happening all over Dallas where areas that may have historically had issues, folks who are moving here, it's a clean slate. Okay. So, yeah, I think it's it's a lot of that. What's been like, what's going on in the Dallas market right now? I mean, clearly like vacancies at an all time low. Are we even close to having enough units on the ground to take care of everybody? We don't think so. Um, you know, and also what we're seeing is like the wage growth is intense among the renters. Right. Um, and so that changes things significantly as well. Yeah. So is, is the future of Savoy, more opportunity zones, or is it more ground up stuff? Is that is that kind of where you're going to be forced to get into? Our perfect deal in the OZ space is really, hey, let's buy a big swath of an area that historically has been uninvestable or has has seen very little investment, but a big swath of an area that has buildings that we can renovate thoughtfully and that also has vacant land, which will get an uplift from our building renovations but then that, that we can develop. So we're looking for more holes in the donut. And when you talk about heavy value add, this ain't, you know, new paint on the cabinets, new countertops. You're taking this to the studs. Windows, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, you know, roof, foundation, 
Yeah, I mean, we're gutting, gutting it. Yes. 50 or 60,000 a unit. Okay. All right, man. This is uh this has been great. You've um you've got me my my wheels are spinning right now. Good. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you having me over. Thanks so much. All right, man. Yeah. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.